Hey, hey, you're listening to Stuttering is Cool, coming to you live on tape <laughs> to steal from another podcast. Well, not really tape, live on, on hard drive from Toronto, Canada. I'm Danny. Today we're talking about science and also how to avoid scam artists who promise you a stuttering cure in three days or something silly like that. But first, feedback. Hi, Daniele. My name is Jai. I had posted a while ago and you were kind enough to play it back. I just wanted to talk about something else that has worked for me. Um, and uh, a long time ago, I figured out, like a lot of other people who stutter, that I was remarkably fluent when speaking or reading to myself alone in a room but then when someone else walked in or trying to speak to other people it was a completely different story. Um, a long time ago I spent hours reading aloud to myself and actually taping the audio and playing it back to myself later and later on, uh, sub subsequently, I did video uh, tape of myself speaking fluently. I would play back hours and hours of these tapes and try to figure out why was it, what was I doing correctly. Um, I never could figure out really what I was doing, but the fact remains that I was fluent when speaking by myself. Now, there was a time when I could not read fluently aloud to other people. And then one day I discovered that I was able to read fluently to other people, just like that. And I think the reason for that had to do with the hours of practice that I had put in reading aloud to myself. It was like the tennis player who takes practice swings off the court or you know, outside of the real match. And then when, the, when in the real game, where everything matters, my speech mechanism sort of went on automatic pilot and it didn't matter if there were people around. From there on it was it got easier trying to speak to other people and uh, as I mentioned before a couple of the hurdles for me were um, authority figures and that's all in your mind really and also um, the telephone. So I just wanted to offer that out, to throw that out there to people who might want to try to do some experiments on their own. Try recording yourself. If you are the type of stutterer who is fluent uh, when speaking to yourself, by yourself, um, record yourself, audio, video, play it back, do hours of it and play it back. Eventually it will sink in or dawn on you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with your mechanics of speech. And really, that is what the story is. So I say experiment, find things that work, and uh, good luck. Happy Canada Day. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy Canada, Canada Day to you too. Canada celebrates its national holiday on July the 1st. And as I was away uh, at the NSA conference, well, when Jay had sent this in, so uh, I'm able to play his feedback right now. <laughs> Sorry for the delay. Thanks for sending that in, Jay. My, very much appreciated. And you are right. You know, I find that as, and I've heard other people um, who have told me that when they keep practicing their speech tools, their speech therapy, um, you know, they keep their, um, their habit, their, uh, the stuff that, that, that they've learned. Uh, once they stop practicing, they lose everything. And, you know, which makes sense, um, because everything else in life is like that, right? Um, you know, I like going to the gym, for example, the minute that I stop going, <laughs> the body goes to pot. Um, and, you know, same thing with picking up a sport, you know, and anything in life. The more in practice that you are with this, with something, you'll always be, uh, be sharp. I just want to spend a couple of minutes. I don't want to go on for too long because I've already spent enough energy on this crap. There are many scam artists out there on the internet who try to sell 
a stuttering cure. Now, we know that there is no such thing as a stuttering cure. Science has proven it. These scam artists don't have any proof. They don't provide proper compelling proof. There's one woman lately who's been making her rounds on Facebook, speaking in ways to lure you in, to trust her, and she's super nice to you, yet... You know, she's offering this three-day course over Skype that will cure your stuttering. She even came into stuttering to, to stutter social one time, and we told her, well, you can't use the term cure because science says so. Now she says eliminate stuttering because that's any different. She has a video that uh, she says, here, here's the proof. Well, the video has before, it supposedly has before and after, you know. Uh, I say supposedly of someone who used to stutter and now he doesn't anymore. I say supposedly because any actor can fake stutter in front of a camera. And honestly, you're in the internet age where anybody can shoot video and any anybody can be false. Do you, re do you really think a video is going to do any anything? She charges seven grand. I mean seven grand, give me a break. Proper speech therapy isn't even seven seven grand. She isn't even a licensed speech pathologist. Enough said. She didn't even know what the NSA was. And I think she, in my conversation with her on Stutter Social, thank goodness she never came back. Um, I don't think she knew. I don't remember if she even knew what Asha was. But I'm not going to say what her name is because I don't want to give her Google juice. You know, she is a scam artist and she already unfortunately got someone in the in the in the community fortunately he did reveal what her supposed techniques were now um of course now he did not finish the program it doesn't mean uh, to me that doesn't mean anything if he found the program complete crap which it was <laughs> I mean, come on, you don't even have proper proof. Well, um, um, I'm just, just rambling now. I just, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because something like stuttering, and, and this was a point that a friend of mine made, that something like stuttering that is ingrained in you your whole life, you really think it's going to eliminate in three days? Come on. Anything in life whether it's stuttering related or not, requires hard work. It takes a long time. That's the way life goes. We're living in a society where we want instant gratification. That's why people tend to take the road to least resistance. That's why people believe in such scams like eliminate or cure your stuttering in three days. Well, if I read it on the internet, it's got to be true. If you run into this woman, you'll know who she, who she is. <laughs> I say, don't believe a word she says. She contradicted herself so many times. She even said, uh, you know, very, very bad things about stutterers too. So she's definitely not interested in getting to know stutterers. She's on a lot of the forums. I've left those forums, so I don't know if she's still active. But I just wanted to give you, my dear listeners, a warning. The best acceptance, I mean, sorry, the best cure for stuttering is the acceptance. It's the getting into the community, making other friends with, making friends with other stutterers, going through the desensitization. You have to go through the battle for the battle scars if you want your, your freedom. Um, I know it sounds scary, the idea of openly stuttering, um, you know, a lot of you know, fluency chasers uh, tend to think they'll never find a job because they stutter. Okay, you will find work only when you've achieved these things that I just said. The desensitization, the acceptance, the community, the openness. You got to face your fears and do them. It's the only way you can grow. A smooth-talking three-day quote-unquote cure will not do anything it won't build confidence even if those cures did work you were you're, you suddenly woke up not stuttering do you really think 
you're going to be able to do all those things that you said that you would do if you didn't stutter. Now, speaking of conversations online, I had another conversation <laughs> that prompted me to uh, to ask previous Stuttering is Cool guest and my good friend Greg Snyder, uh, who is a stuttering researcher, fellow stutterer, also an SLP living in the United States. He is very, very well learned in all this and in, in all the scientific data when it comes to stuttering. And so here is my interview. I will explain what the question is or the issue is that we're talking about. And I just and I just want to mention, unfortunately, during the recording of our chat, I had my microphone too close to my mouth, and so you can hear me breathing in certain areas. I'm very sorry. It's very annoying to hear this. Uh, there was nothing I could do about removing it, and I just and our conversation was so good. I just did not want to discard it and try re-recording it again. I was having conversation on a stirring forum on Facebook, which will go unnamed. Uh, <laughs> uh, all about the evidence of emotional trauma, like say if it's changing house, um, parents divorcing, or what David Seidler says, um, hearing the bombs exploding over London, uh, causing stuttering, or causing stuttering in those who have the gene, the stuttering gene, the predisposition and so I kept saying, no, it's not true. That doesn't happen. So I just wanted to ask you, how, I guess my first question is, is that true? And second question, how do we know when something we read, either in a textbook, from a scientist, if it's something that we should believe f fully or yeah. just understand that, you know, research in the future can reveal something else or... Yeah, you know, like yeah, I just want to pick you, pick your scientific brain. This is a, a a tough one for a couple of reasons. So I'll I'll first off I'll give out a caveat of I didn't read what you read. I don't know <laughs> the context, True. and True. so I wasn't able to find any. Yeah, yeah but you know I don't want to say things that get taken out of context by people yeah. that are being taken out of uh, uh, context. Yeah. So I'm just gonna go with what you've presented. You know, can a single very traumatic event uh, basically makes stuttering start. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why this is so tough is because it's always going to be an after-the-fact explanation. Mm -hmm. um, what true science is, is true science tries to be systematic, it tries to be empirical, it tries to predict, um, it tries to be rational, it tries to be amoral, meaning that it doesn't care. Mm -hmm. um, it just wants the, the truth. And, and the challenge with the scenarios that you're saying is that they're all going to be after the fact. You know, little Jimmy didn't start stuttering until, you know, this. And um, we as people are so designed, we're so tuned to find causes mm -hmm. um, that very often we will equate a cause even when it's not related, just to reduce our own cognitive dissonance. Um, one such example is when you can basically, um, let me step back, for some people that might have a neurological phenomenon, you can flash like pictures or concepts to their left visual field that'll get processed by their right side of their brain. Um, oftentimes what they'll do is then they'll then use that picture as almost like a theme and then they'll make up a story to make sense of that reality. Um, and they don't really even know that they're doing it, but their mind is just trying to make sense out of everything. Mm -hmm. So the only point that I'm trying to make is that we as people are hardwired to make sense out of things. And so it's exceedingly tempting for us to pair a traumatic onset of, of, a, uh, of a pathology with a traumatic um, eve, eve event. Um, 
and all of that is done after the fact. So what you have is people trying to explain stuff after it's already occurred as opposed to predicting stuff that has yet to occur. When you're a true scientist, you try to predict stuff before it occurs and see if it occurs. If you try to explain it after it's already occurred, then that's more of a pseudoscientific approach because you really don't know why it occurred. You just know that it occurred and you're trying to explain why. Um, and there's a big difference between the two. Um, for example, if you have a chicken on a chicken farm, the chicken has basically two approaches. One approach is to start off with a pre-existing bias. You know, the chicken farmer loves me, and he loves me so much that twice a day he comes on, he checks on me. He gives me food and water, and so I'm going to go ahead and just say the guy loves me because look at all the stuff that he's done. The other approach is to say, I don't know what's up with this farmer, but I know that every day at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. he's come in to check on me, so tomorrow I'm going to predict that he's going to come also. The challenge that I'm trying to explain is that when people have a pre-existing bias, their mind is going to make it work out. And their mind is going to support their pre-existing bias every time. So that the chicken was convinced the farmer loves me. And he shows his love by giving me food and protecting me every day. Um, that's not what's going on. The chicken is going to get killed, right? So a lot of times people will go into stuttering with a pre-existing bias. And their pre-existing bias is stuttering has a psychological origin. Mm. And that one is kind of an easy bias to make because of things like the fundamental attribution error where if there are things that we don't understand, we immediately blame somebody's character. Um, and that's what Wendell J J Johnson essentially suggested. You know, I don't... I'm not anxious because I stutter. I stutter because I'm anxious. There you go. So these people come in with a pre-existing bias. That is their perspective, and they can't really step out of it. So when they begin to stutter, then they think, well, my pre-existing bias, which I don't admit as a bias, I think of it as being the truth, will say that there must have been something traumatic occurred, so let's go back in time to try to discover it. So what they're doing is they're going back in time to tr try to discover the traumatic event that must have caused stuttering. Now, um, the other thing about it is that does a traumatic event make a pathology that was not there all of a sudden become? Or could a traumatic event simply increase the severity of something that was already there? Does that make sense? So it seems to me that certainly anxiety might increase our severity, but it's not going to cause it. It's yeah. just increase the severity to make it worse. Um, so what I think is occurring is a lot of times these people have a psychological prejudice and there's genetic data that they can't dispute. It's just there. And so what they're trying to do is to find a way to somehow integrate the genetic data into their pre-existing bias. Um. So if people are genetically encoded with polygenic mutations to have this stuttering predisposition, well, they can't deny that. If they did, they would be made f fun of and thrown out. So they're trying to include that and say, well, they have a predisposition, but it might go either way. You're not sure until that one traumatic event occurred. Um, Third point is we have well-documented conversion phenomenons where stress and anxiety will be so great the body can't really process it. So the body will literally turn off sensory input. So there's cases of conversion blindness, uh, specifically with paratroopers in World War II. Wow. I, I don't know off the top of my head if there's any conversion toughness. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me. We do have cases of conversion aphonia, 
where people will have stressful events and then they'll think that they'll lose their voice. Um, and the telltale sign of these conversion pathologies is that one, they still retain their reflexive abilities so they can cough and they can laugh. They just can't talk. Um, and two, they're almost always apathetic about it. They don't care. So, you know, in essence, what another argument these people might try to make is that somehow psychologically induced stuttering is some kind of conversion pathology. Um, but that doesn't really pan out. Uh, one, I've never observed it. I've never spoken with someone that's observed it. I've read maybe two accounts of it. And the challenge with those is that when people so believe that something is true, they're going to want it to be true. And so then it becomes true. Um, that's, and it ends up in a textbook. Right, and then it can end up in a textbook. Um, another, you know, and so there's so many different scenarios here, but basically if you want something, if you believe it, you want it to be true, and you'll find ways to make it true, or at least to convince you yourself that it's true. Um, based on my knowledge of the data, there is no empirical evidence that predicts that this is true. Now, there are tons of articles that said, well, you know, these 10 kids began to stutter, and right around when they began stuttering, they had traumatic events. Well, one, you have to define what threshold of trauma is actually powerful enough. They can't do that. They only do that after the kids begin to stutter. Two, trauma happens all the time. Mm. You know, like this past weekend, one of our people got shot. Trauma. Is it trauma enough to cause stuttering in some small kid? We don't know. You know, I mean, so bad things occur, and we're affected by bad things every day. So for them to randomly pick one and say, well, that must have been it, is a post hoc after the fact explanation. Um, so the thing that these guys need to do is they need to actually look at it from we predict, and then they have to start going about it from a true science perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's what Wendell Johnson tried to do when he went to an orphanage, or he sent his doctoral student to an orphanage to try to basically freak these kids out so much that... You're kidding. Oh, no, yeah, you didn't... Dude, no, Google it. Um, Wendell Johnson sent his doctoral student named Mary Tudor to an orphanage in Iowa. And uh, it's now called the monster. Oh, the monster study. Yeah, so if you yeah, yeah. Google the, the, that, but uh, he tried to basically have his doctoral student freak these kids out so much that she could make normally fluent kids into stuttering kids. Um, and if you read their data, they so believe that they created stuttering that they believe that they did. Now, if you go back and reread their data, what I think you'll find is they made kids very anxious, and so they didn't like talking. <laughs> you oh, know? wow. So they didn't really create stuttering, but they sure did, get, you know, they gave, they gave kids a, a, com a communication challenge. Mm. It's not the stuttering phenomenon. Um, how these things end up in textbooks is because scientists themselves believe what they want to believe. The big joke when I was getting my own doctorate is that at some point you begin to realize that everything is a hypothesis. Mm. Everything. And at some point um, science actually becomes a sport of persuasion. So uh, as a joke we even got my major advisor a shirt that we had custom made and it would say on the front of the shirt it's all made up <laughs> he said that all the time because we would ask him questions you know why do they believe that and he would shrug his shoulders and say I don't know it's all made up so you know we thought that stuttering was caused because you were cursed by the gods we thought that it was a, a blood chemistry problem we thought that it's like a problem with your tongue. We thought that you know you're anxious because you stutter. We thought that you learn to speak incorrectly. We thought that you were just plain old 
um, in coordinated. You know, I mean, we've thought a ton of yeah. things, and each time a person that believes whatever they believe is convinced that they are right and everybody else is wrong. So these people will write their own textbooks. Yeah, and textbooks yeah. aren't really peer reviewed. They're written by, by, by an author. The publisher has an editor that usually doesn't know that much about the, uh, the source content. Some of the better publishers will pay other professionals to review it. Um, but, you know, I mean, in general, textbooks are people's uh, opinion. And especially in stuttering, where it's such an emotionally charged issue, you have to know the opinion of the author to know what you're getting at. Mm. Like if uh, I read Oliver Bloodstein's handbook on stuttering, I know I'm getting a guy that believes that deep down it's psychological. Um, and so the guy does a fantastic review of stuttering, and I still have the book. It's right behind me. And I know that it's a great review of the past stuttering perspectives if it's from a psychological perspective. Um, I can look at some other textbooks that are the ex exact opposite from like maybe a speech motor perspective, like a Woody Stark Weather has written some terrific textbooks, and I still caught him in the back or uh, in my uh, bookshelf here, but they're from more of a speech motor perspective. Um, and now some of these new textbooks are coming out from a more purely neurophysiological perspective. So just because it's a textbook doesn't mean that it's real. It means that it's somebody's opinion, and they can cherry-pick parts of the phenomenon to support them. Um, just because you stutter doesn't make you an expert in stuttering. <laughs> that, that is the truth. Like people will say, That's well, why I'm asking you. <laughs> people... Well, say, well, since I stutter, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't need a professional to tell me, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's wrong, too. Because um, when I thought I knew all about stuttering, now I know that I don't know jack uh, about it. Um, and I guess my final thought, and then I'll shut up and <laughs> you can ask me stuff, is that my own hypothesis here is that people are going to believe what's easiest for them psychologically. And so people basically have a choice. Um, I stutter. That's not a choice. That's their reality. Their choice, their choice is why. Well, let's put some options out there. Choice number one is that I'm a victim of a psychological trauma. Choice number two is there is indeed something physically wrong. Those are the, the, the two choices. So some people, I think, might find it easier to say, well, I, it's easier for me to believe that I stutter because of some psychological trauma that I'm not responsible, as opposed for them saying something inside me is physically broken. Um, the, the, the challenge with that is that if you go the psychological route, then what you're saying is, is, well, I'm a victim of a psychological trauma, and I'm too psychologically weak to overcome it. Um, and I mean, that's a, a tough one for me. That's like buying something with a credit card. You're going to have to pay, yeah. <laughs> you know, the payment is coming. So you might avoid the, or you might be in denial of, I have a physical issue. Um, but the side effects of believing that it's a psychological issue is going to be with you for your entire time. Um, my belief is just to say, you know what? The genetic data, pretty darn compelling. Yeah. Um, the neurophysiological data, pretty darn compelling. Um, the other thing about being a true scientist is you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, one example is with monozygotic twins, there is a 90% concordance uh, rate. That is to say that if you have identical twins, if one stutters, 90% of the time, the other one will stutter too. This is very challenging because 10% of the time we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Do they not stutter at all? Maybe they stutter so mildly that it's not presenting themselves. Maybe they're covert. We don't know. But 10% of the time we cannot account for what's going on. This is a troubling 
issue. But as a true scientist, I have two choices. I can either pull something out of my insert <laughs> to try to account for what I don't understand, or I can just sit back and say, you know what? I don't understand it. God understands it. I got a list that I'm going to ask, but as for now, I, I, I don't. Um, so that's my take on it. I know of no compelling evidence to suggest that stuttering is psychologically caused. I have no compelling evidence suggesting that it can be triggered by stuttering. Um, it's very possible that maybe that increases severity, but the pathology is. Mm. So that, that's kind of my take on it. And people are going to disagree with me. That's okay. But they're going to have their pre-existing bias, and I'm going to have mine. And the reality of it is someplace way over there where... All of us are kind of cool, 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 Lewis. Like I said to you at the NSA conference, I can listen to you talk about this all day. <laughs> well, that would be. <laughs> I have Ray Mancini with me, who is a fellow designer living in Brooklyn, in New York City. And, well, this fellow designer decided to, am I right that you're the one that decided, of course, <laughs> to write your <laughs> master's thesis um, about, was it designing and stuttering or looking at stuttering? Yeah. Actually, why don't, why don't I let you do the talking since Hi, you're I the one that wrote <laughs> the master's? <laughs> yes. Hi, everyone. Um, I wanted to say... Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, so, yeah, um, I am um, a uh, designer and um, I chose um, uh, to do my uh, thesis um, on uh, design uh, uh, thinking and uh, uh, methodologies and how I could apply those to my problem um, of uh, of stuttering, and it's it's a personal uh, um, I guess passion of mine, and it was something I had uh, um, planned to do almost as I started into grad school, and I wasn't sure how exactly I would combine them, but uh, um, I did, and that was my. Uh, uh, thesis and it was very well uh, um, received and and I'm very proud of it. Um, the basic overview is that I mean, uh, um, so as a designer, uh, we use um, um, certain processes uh, to come up with a solution uh, to um, a problem, to um, like a visual problem. I mean, a, a conceptual problem. We have to communicate in some way. Um, over the years, um, this idea has been codified into um, the term of design of thinking, and this has been a catch-all term to describe uh, um, the like processes we use in the design field. But also, um, now it's been applied uh, um, inter. Um, disciplinarily in which it's been used to create um, a like, culture of, of uh, innovation in the corporate world, uh, in the business world, and um, it's been used to attempt to solve uh, uh, social problems, um, complex ill-defined problems that have happened, things like poverty, uh, things like healthcare, all sorts of applications for it that are outside of the realm of the design world. Hmm. So for me, I was very excited by this and I said, I, I can try to apply this to my own uh, ill-defined complex problem, my own problem and, and the 1% of the world who also have this problem. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so really it, it comes down to there are three main uh, sorts of tenants in the design process. Um, that I would say, I mean, I go through as a designer. One is um, like empathetic, unbiased observation, and that's where um, I'm confronted with a scenario or a problem, or a client will 
um, you know, like bring me the problem they have to solve, and I will unbiasedly and really empathetically observe what is happening in the situation, uh, what is going on. Um, uh, number two is uh, the brainstorming the ideas with a group of peers. You know, after you've observed a situation, you brainstorm this. What have we learned? Is there insight? Are, are we finding some trends in the, you know, in what we're seeing and what we've uh, learned about the problem and what we've observed? Maybe the customer interacting. Uh, what we've observed in a video of the behavior. What we've observed from past examples. Um, and the final stage is uh, rapid prototyping where we'll take these ideas and uh, come up with ideas and there might be one that's very valid and we'll just rapidly sort of prototype it, either sketch it out, uh, if you're making a product we'll make a little example and you'll see if it works and this happens very um, very fast and uh, in a quick way and you can uh, repeat this process throughout in order to continue to improve uh, you know what you're finding as a solution so with my speech now how this works is um, um, I guess where I started um, I was taking uh, uh, um, uh, therapy from a traditional therapist and um, it was going well but I found I was speaking uh, very fluently in in the office uh, but the second I would go outside and especially mm. when I was in school now yeah, um, yeah. I would be exposed I would get very anxious you know mm. a little like I am now but <laughs> I, I'm getting... oh there's no need to be anxious it's just <laughs> I know me. it's a very calm <laughs> environment here so it's <laughs> I thank you but so um, I I would get very anxious and you know, everything I learned uh, speak slowly uh, you have to uh, mm de-emphasize your consonants. Uh, I used um a lot, almost like I am now, and I'm probably Welcome to my world. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm probably talking a bit fast now. I should mm. slow it down a bit, but so I, I, I was sort of uh, frustrated, um, and my wife and I own a company here, um, I'm a, a design studio, and I, I'm not bad in it. I talk with the clients. I answer the phone. But I would switch words. Uh, I would say a lot of ums. If they asked me my name or something outright, I would get blocked on the small little things, which seemed just very superficial. But I would get asked, "Hey, are you not smart? You forgot oh, name." Oh, he asked you that. You're not well, smart. Wow. Well, you, well, it's. I mean, sometimes people are like, "Oh, you're forgetful," and I would play yeah. it. I, and yeah. I'm sure everyone out there will know the story. But, but I got very good at it over my life, and. <laughs> So what? <laughs> but I wasn't happy. I wanted to be able to speak about my ideas mm. in a strong way. And my wife, she said um, uh, a year and a half ago, she said, "We have this video on our on our laptop. You can show it easily. You can post it. Why don't you try to tape yourself on the phone?" And I said, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> <laughs> And I said, are, are you kidding me? With I, all I, due respect to your wife. Yes, <laughs> Sorry. I said, are, are you crazy? I, I said, <laughs> I, I have this idea in my head of how I come across. And I know I, I've, I've seen myself before. I've heard myself. I, I'm in the media, uh, uh, interactive world. I, mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable. I know how it is to be online on video. But I, I've always kind of like tailored it. I, I've been able to to get through. I didn't want to see myself in a unbiased way. Mm. But I started to do it, and it was very frustrating at first. I would make calls, and I would just ask a couple simple questions, uh, the location of a store, the hours, and I would tape it. And I started the blog, me and my speech. Uh, Yes. <laughs> so oh, I, sorry. Did I just finish your? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, it was okay. an accident. <laughs> oh no, and it's. It, I know that's fine. I I'm very easygoing with those things, though. <laughs> Even fellow stutterers do that. Ouch. 
No, no, it's okay. I, <laughs> I do it sometimes too. I should. <laughs> but uh, so I started that blog um, a while back, and that was my uh, really like experiments. And I had a group of friends who posted on it. And it was very interesting, and I would just make calls, and we would talk about it, and they said, oh, you wow. look more nervous, or you, I would say, oh, I was off, I didn't exercise that day, or I was very... So you videotaped yourself, and you showed yes. your friends, or your friends were with, oh, wow. Oh, no, I would videotape, if you go on that blog, uh, yeah. and I apologize if there's people on it now, they want to look at it, um... <laughs> I haven't updated it in a long time because I'm in the process of just moving things over to a new site, and I had school, and I had a yeah. son. It's now seven Life months gets in the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's so there. Yeah, it's there still. And oh, you're oh, talking on oh, the phone. Yeah, I'm just looking at your videos now. Yeah, I, you can. I, I, I thought you probably walked into the place <laughs> with the camera. Well. <laughs> Well, see, it began like that on the phone, and then I found that I could bring, um, you know, my uh, laptop into school and tape any presentation I had, mm -hmm. and it became a way we would do. And the friends would comment on it, and then I would go and make more calls a day later, and really try to improve and saw what worked and what didn't. And now, fast forward to. Uh, thesis, I suddenly uh, realized, wait a minute, the process I was sort of engaged in in a casual way was my process as a designer. I was really finding a way to observe myself in a situation where there, there, where there was a problem and where I sought some sort of an improvement, but I didn't know what exactly the solution would be and my friends and I we were brainstorming then and I was really taking the ideas and the next day trying to turn those ideas around and to do something with them and I said hey I I've sort of found a way to uh, marry the uh, world of uh, design with the world of stuttering wow. and for me it was like a light bulb sort of went off it's it, it's not like it's it's the first time anyone's married a yeah. the like design world it the design process into another field but this was all new for uh, really for the community that we're in and and so I I was excited about it and I came up with a framework uh, almost a process that uh, I took the best aspects of of the design uh, thinking and I came up with a framework um, it's a like three stage uh, nine step uh, 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 nine step uh, process and and almost a framework that you could follow and you could try these experiments for yourself uh, you, you could come up with your own experiments if you have a video and you have a group of friends and you're willing to do it and, and it that's how it started yeah it's a very interesting concept and uh, and it's woke up a memory in my head uh, a few months ago i had uh, i had um, someone on my show who created an iphone app yeah um speech for good where okay. it's all it's it's not the same as your concept but the idea was that you send a recording of yourself to your friends, <laughs> you know, you post on yeah. Facebook, which I thought was also an interesting idea. And so this is this is uh, this is actually bringing video. Wow, um, yeah. what a cool concept! And also, it brings that idea of um, bringing a video <laughs> camera to record uh, <laughs> me stuttering in, in a certain situation. Um, so yeah, has, it's oh yeah yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, you were going to ask a question. I oh should. no, I was just going to ask, uh, what have you learned about yourself or has, has your speech improved, got better, worse, nothing, or was it more of just an observation? Yeah. Or yeah, what was the outcome? What I've learned really, uh, I could tell um, a short story, which was during my school, where this really, really helped. Um, mm -hmm. What had happened was um, I had to make a... Uh, um, a 
I had to make a presentation in front of uh, my school, um, all of my peers um, and the professors at the halfway point of my thesis. And it was a five uh, minutes sort of a presentation up in front of them, up in front of everyone on a stage. And my whole school uh, life had sort of led up to this idea that I was going to go up there and I was going to be fluent <laughs> and amazing and you know utterly and and everyone would rise and applaud me and there would be tears flowing tears and I would conquer every anxiety <laughs> I had and so as the weeks began to uh, uh, lead up to the presentation I realized I was just not going to be able to do it I would not be fluent I would say a lot of ums I would get blocked in class so my classmates were there and the professor. But you know, what had been happening was was each week we were actually going through my process in a real way. They were observing me oh my God. unbiasedly. <laughs> and and we started on the final class. I had this moment where I broke down and I said, I'm not gonna be able to do it. This is not the way I wanted to sound, I I don't sound smart. I don't sound composed, and we started to brainstorm. And the, and my one classmate said, "Why don't you put a piece of paper up, and then every time you block, you can mark a little line on it. Don't tell the audience, but just mark a little line on it." And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah, it, you can probably you can take a break." Because I notice you, if you take a break, you're a little better composed. If you take a second and you breathe again. And it could be a way to sort of uh, engage your audience in a mysterious way and sort of get the onus off of me, uh, the spotlight on me. And we That's tried it. In interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. And we tried it in class and it worked. I felt very confident. I got control of a situation that's very uncontrollable. And... I said, I think I can do this because it became then, it was my process in sort of like real time. We were going through the, almost through the process and we were prototyping it out and it worked. And then I said, in front of everyone, it would be my process is happening as I'm talking about it because I'm in front of you and I'm trying something new in order to be more fluent. Mm -hmm. And I went up in front of everyone a week later and I came out and I blocked on a couple words and I started putting the lines up and everyone's got very curious and they inched up in their seats. I love and I, that. And I felt suddenly very in control and it was a success. It was amazing wow. and everyone said, first of all, we never knew you had a stutter, which I get a lot and I was amazed at that first off and they said, mm. it was amazing how you it was your process in uh, real time in front of all of us. And I did that at, um, a, um, at a speech for um, the AIGA, uh, which is um, a design organization you know, in the country. It's, it's probably the foremost advocate for the design field. Um, and Pratt had asked me, to go and to speak there in front of them at a presentation with a group of other uh, master students and grad students, and I did the same thing because I wanted to try it in a in another venue, and it worked really well, and <laughs> people were very interested in that. And so it's, I found a way. It became actually it became a fail-safe plan because the more I stuttered. Um, the more I would count that data point up on the paper and the more interested people got. So it wasn't a, it was like a win-win for me. Yeah. I was fluent, it was good. It, I had someone tell me if you were fluent, it would not have been as effective to to back up your project. Because it which, became interactive. <laughs> yeah, no, which, and which floored me because I had wanted to be fluent and then I found out, wow, my my issue like became uh, like an integral part of it and it became really the focus on it. I, the weakness so, became the strength. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so to answer your uh, question in a long, old, uh, roundabout way, it uh, yeah, it became a way that I can control my speech in some way. Now that was, well, not control it, but because I can never control it fully, but to control the situation and to find a better way and to give me just a little bit of confidence. I never go in now to um, to a phone call or a presentation and say, oh, there isn't anything I can do. I don't have any techniques. I don't have any tricks. Or I realize, hey, you know, if it's not good, if I'm not fluent, I can take it back and evaluate it and learn from it. And and that's what's been the most powerful for me, the most powerful part of it. Wow. Very nice. Thank you. So would you ever use that technique when you're when you're at a cafe, for example, ordering? You block, you whip out a piece of paper, draw a line, <laughs> continue. <laughs> no, and again, and that's the that is the beauty of the process. You can really tailor it to your own situation. Now, mm. now I block and I say um a lot, so if I taped myself on the phone, I came up with my own sort of uh, uh, my own sort of uh, um, um, parameters, which I said, okay, th th this is my number of blocks. This is my fluent time. This is the number of uh, time I said um. So I came up with my own sort of little parameters, and you can come up with your own if you have a certain situation. Now, yeah, I know that line would not work at a cafe. <laughs> it may work if I had a hidden paper and tried to just make a yeah. <laughs> imaginary mark, but in that situation, I might, you know, I might try to tape myself in a, on my iPhone, maybe just hear how I, how I sounded in that situation, and then go back Play it for some people. What did I do? Yeah. Was I nervous and all of that? Staggering is cool. Well, it certainly was a long episode, so this will be a very short outro. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Stutteringiscool.com is the website, and that's where you can send in feedback. You'll know what I'm talking about once you get there. Please do send feedback. I enjoy playing it on the air, just like I play Jay's feedback. And until then, may your stuttering be confident. Ciao.